Welcome everyone and good afternoon. My name is Sabine Suruda and I'm a law professor at Queen's University. And I'm Sophia Moreau and I'm professor of law and philosophy at the University of Toronto. And today we'll be talking about some of the moral and legal risks of immunity passports. But first we want to thank you all for joining us and we also want to thank the Centre for Ethics at the University of Toronto for hosting us. So after many months of sheltering in place, a policy question that I imagine is on many of our minds is how to safely return to life before COVID-19. So how to reopen stores and restaurants and parks and other social spaces, and how to return to workplaces that were closed in response to COVID-19. Now, many of the economic and medical complexities surrounding the issue of how to reopen the economy um, can make it easy to, to let us lose sight of the kind of moral question that's involved in how to reopen the economy. So we think that this isn't just a technical question uh, that, that can be answered only through science and economics, but it's also a moral question about how to fairly distribute the burdens of reopening, and maybe even more fundamentally about how to remain faithful to our democratic values in the face of a public crisis. So what Sophia and I wanna to do today is to talk through some of the particular moral challenges of reopening by discussing one reopening, one reopening strategy that Canada and the United States have been considering and that other countries such as Chile have already implemented. So namely uh, issuing and then requiring immunity passports, certifying immunity to COVID-19 so that we can return to workplaces and potentially go shopping, attend sporting events, and otherwise return to our lives outside of our homes. Now it's commonly assumed that the main barriers to immunity passports involve our imperfect medical knowledge. So you've probably read on the news that there are a lot of problems with the many current tests available for COVID-19 antibodies that are flooding the marketplace. Um, many of these haven't been verified by third parties. They've been tested on very small sample sizes. Uh, we know that generally in populations where there's a lower prevalence of a certain disease, tests like this are more likely to give false positives. And there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding the protection that such antibodies can give even when we can reliably measure them. We don't know for how long people will be protected from illness, for instance. But the concern that Sabine and I are going to talk through today, or the set of concerns, actually uh, arises even if we could overcome all of these medical difficulties. So even if our governments had access to the most reliable antibody test you could imagine, our worry is that there would still be significant moral and legal risks associated with immunity passports. Now proponents of immunity passports advertise them quite commonly as a faster return to life as you know it. And of course, that's what we're all longing for these days. We're all longing to get back to life as we know it. But you should make no mistake, none of the options available to us now involve a return to life as we know it. And immunity passports would certainly not be a return to life as we know it. It would be a new life with significantly exacerbated social inequalities, with constant invasions of our privacy, 
uh, and with a class-based society. So it would be a new society. And Sabine and I are gonna talk through some of what we think the concerns would be with such a society. Now, in order to frame such a discussion today, we're gonna to separate out the discussion into two parts because there are actually two different types of immunity passports that are currently being considered. Um, one type records natural immunity. So the kind of immunity you get when you get COVID-19 and then recover from it and have natural antibodies in you. This type of immunity passport is currently being considered right now as a part of exit strategies from lockdown. So we'll look at that first. But of course, there's another type of immunity passport that's also being considered. This is the kind that would record vaccinations once a vaccine for COVID-19 becomes available. We actually think this kind raises different problems of social justice. So we're going to discuss this kind of immunity passport second. So let's start with natural immunity passports. So given that there is no vaccine in sight and a tremendous amount of political pressure to reopen, we think that the more immediate question for us is whether to use immunity passports to verify natural immunity based on prior exposure to the virus. Now, as Yusufaya pointed out, the evidence is at best a bit mixed on the reliability of our current antibody tests. But suppose that those tests do turn out to work well and that they can be made widely available. To many of us, natural immunity passports may seem to be a pretty attractive interim measure to get people back to work and back to social life more broadly. If some people are immune and therefore can't get sick or transmit the virus to others, why not let them go back to workplaces and shop in stores, travel, and so forth? But as, we, as we'll discuss, we don't think that immunity passports are the only way to reopen, and they raise at least three serious social justice problems. So first, as we'll explain, they place a disproportionately large burden on society's least advantaged, most marginalized members. And second, they would legally sanction an underclass of non-immunized, non-employed members of society. And then third, because of all of this, we think that it's a, there's a pretty good chance that natural immunity passports would actually violate anti-discrimination laws. Okay, so first, with respect to disproportionate burdens on the least advantaged members of society. Now again, at first glance, natural immunity passports can seem to place the greatest health risks of reopening of them on the members of our society who can most easily bear those risks, namely people who are already immune. But I think that when we look at how natural immunity passports can operate in actual real social contexts, that's not obviously true. So first we think a historical example might be helpful. Uh, in recent articles in the American Historical Review and the New York Times, Professor Catherine Olivarius of Stanford's History Department details how in the early 19th century, parts of America actually required immunity to yellow fever uh, for employment. And she details how in response, the working poor in large numbers actively sought out exposure to the disease so that they could acquire what she's called the immunocapital they needed to secure employment. Now, of course, we're not living in the antebellum South anymore, um, or maybe ever, but, uh, but Canada and the United States both do have large impoverished populations in which people of color, indigenous people, women, and persons with disabilities are vastly and non-accidentally overrepresented. 
And that's not surprising in light of our histories of colonialism, racial subordination, slavery, patriarchy, and so forth. Now, in light of that social context, we can't just assume that natural immunity passports would place the greatest health risks of reopening on the immune. They would also compromise the health and broader well-being of the working poor who lack immunity. So imagine you don't have a job that permits you to work from home or a financial cushion to support a long hiatus from work. And many of us are in fact in this situation. What would you do if you had to be naturally immune to get a job uh, or to even do groceries? Now I think natural immunity passports would place many of the least advantaged members of society in this kind of dilemma of having to choose between self-infecting to acquire the immuno capital they need to get a job and meet their basic needs, or on the other hand, to just continue sheltering in place and possibly falling into even further poverty. Now, we're not the first to have mentioned this worry that immunity passports will create perverse incentives to self-infect particularly in the most vulnerable groups. But part of what we have found interesting, Sabine and I, when we've been reading articles about this in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, is that very often this incentive to self-infect is presented as a, an incentive that is only gonna be a problem for a certain number of idiosyncratic, immoral individuals who are willing to sa potentially sacrifice their health and the health of, health of their family in order to secure a benefit. And I take it, Sabine, that your point now is that this isn't just a problem either for a small number or for a group of people whom we can perhaps discount because they're behaving immorally. This would be an incentive that, that we had created as a society. We would have placed huge social pressure on people to make what might from their position be quite a rational choice, especially uh, given the high rates of recovery from COVID-19. Yes, exactly. Um, and importantly, just to underscore one more piece of that, it's not just the kind of random person that's out there, and it's, and it's not just the public pressure to do that, but who experiences the pressure is itself a function of really deep and endemic social inequalities. So this is a, a class uh, problem as well. Now, um, in light of that fact, if there were greater and easily accessible social support for people that might find themselves in this position, then maybe that position wouldn't even be there to begin with. So maybe the dilemma would be attenuated or just not present because you could conceivably continue sheltering in place and not become impoverished as a result. And a lot of commentators have argued thus far that having something like a universal basic income in place would have gone a really long way and alleviating many of the class-based inequities uh, that have been produced by massive unemployment in this particular period. So we're not saying that natural immunity requirements would always or necessarily in every possible situation create this class-based dilemma to self-infect or to go into further poverty. A lot depends on the particular social context we're looking at and on the kinds of social supports that are part of our broader reopening package. And, and given that these social support programs are really hard to roll out, we really can't treat them as an afterthought, as something that we just leave off to work out once we're already sold on immunity passports. And I think, let me jump in here, Sabine, because I think that's a really important point that you've made. Uh, we shouldn't think that first we can just 
work on setting up the database, and then we'll iron out all the detail, the other details later. Um, the Canadian doctor who created Can Immunize, which is a an app that allows Canadians to keep track of their immunization status, wants to turn this into a national database to keep track of everybody's COVID-19 immunity. And he's suggesting that now is the time to build the database and we'll just get what he calls legal oversight at a later date. But the problem is precisely that it's not clear what adequate legal, legal oversight is going to be, and we can't just get it at a later date. If we develop the database now, there'll be so much of an incentive for us to continue using it that by the time we realize all of the problems that have arisen, it will be too late. Exactly. Um, and then I think there's just one, one more final point we want to emphasize about the way we think about these burdens of reopening. Um, and that's Although financial and physical well-being are undoubtedly really important to consider as we're doing this, they're not the only morally relevant metrics that are out there. So as one of our Canadian political philosophers, G.A. Cohen, used to say, when you're living in a market economy and you don't have money, it's not just that there's less stuff you can buy. Um, there's hardly anything that you can do. So it's not just that natural immunity passports risk compromising the working poor's physical and financial well-being. The passports also risk leaving people with practically no meaningful freedoms um, unless they choose to self-infect. And that's really not a choice we should go out to impose on anyone, um, especially if that choice can be avoided. Exactly. Okay, I want to move on now to the second of our main concerns about natural immunity passports. And this is the worry that they will end up creating a legally sanctioned underclass. Uh, so we've, Sabina, I think you've done an excellent job of pointing out the drastic effects that immunity passports would have on the underprivileged non-immune. A, a related worry is that they would therefore, in effect, create a new underclass in Canadian society. Now, of course, our society is already divided along many lines, racial lines, gender lines, sexual orientation, people with disability are marginalized. So you might think this is nothing new, it's one more class division. But we think there are at least two significant differences between existing divisions, existing classes in society, and this new underclass that would be created by immunity passports. The first is that if the government sanctioned immunity passports and used them as a prerequisite for employment, or participation in public life outside the home, it would be putting its official stamp of approval on the existence of an underclass in a way that it has not tried to do explicitly for quite some time. Canada has spent the past 40 years trying very hard to build an inclusive society. So we've progressively built up a set of anti-discrimination laws. This is, of course, what the two of us work on uh, when we're not uh, giving uh, YouTube sessions like this, uh, these anti-discrimination laws require extensive accommodation of different groups' needs. We do that through the human rights codes. We do that through Section 15 of the Charter. All of these laws have aimed to build a society in which everyone has an equal chance to participate. And importantly, I think these laws have also tried to spread across all of us 
the costs associated with providing different groups with an equal chance to work and share in public life. So for instance, we've worked hard to implement paid parental leaves and labor laws that enable people to keep their job even after their parental leave. We require employers to give people of all religions the chance to observe their religion without it interfering with their employment. And Canadian law places on employers the duty to accommodate the needs of all their employees up to the point of undue hardship. And, and I think it's important to stress here too that the, the, the threshold of undue hardship is actually quite high. Uh, it can and often does require employers to reconfigure the physical spaces that we work in to make them compatible with universal design principles. Um, it can also require employers to altogether rethink the way in which a job is performed to ensure that the way we've designed jobs isn't premised on only one kind of body, but rather can accommodate a variety of differences. Exactly. So all of these measures are designed to ensure that everyone can participate as an equal in our shared public life. And for the state now suddenly to start sending the explicit message that we're not all equals, that actually some people are fit to work and have a right to work and attend sports games and restaurants and travel and others do not, this really undermines decades of legal and political work. Now, the second key difference between the underclass that would be created by immunity passports and the underprivileged groups that exist right now in Canadian society, I think is equally important. And it's that we can choose not to create an underclass of those who lack immunity passports. Why is that? Well, it's because we don't need to create immunity passports. There are other ways to reopen our economy. I think one of the great unintended benefits of closing down physical workplaces over the past two months has been that employers have been forced to think more creatively about how to enable employees to do their regular jobs. Uh, and in my view, governments need to incentivize businesses, employers to continue this kind of creative redesign of employment practices and workspaces in a way that's maximally inclusive rather than divisive. So in my view, we ought to be enabling the, even the non-immune to work productively, for instance, while observing physical distancing. We should be reimagining tasks associated with different jobs. We should be encouraging employers to let those who wish to work from home work from home and to facilitate their working productively from home. There are lots of things we can do and we'll talk more about this, won't we Sabine, later on during our session. There are lots of alternatives other than implementing immunity passports. So we don't need to create these two classes of people in Canadian society. Exactly. Um, and then this brings us to our third kind of moral problem with uh, natural immunity passports. Um, because of the unfair divide between the immune and the non-immune that these passports would likely create and the availability of alternatives, there's a real risk that denying people jobs and goods or services because they're not naturally immune to COVID-19 would amount to unfair and unlawful discrimination. Now, I think it should be noted and maybe stressed that Canadian human rights law defines disability discrimination expansively. 
um, not just including differential treatment on the basis of the traditional medicalized disabilities, but also to include adverse treatment because of the perception that one poses a risk to others. So because of the significant restrictions that natural immunity passports would place on people's access to employment and the exercise of other liberties, we think it's likely that non-immunity to COVID-19 could in fact be seen as a disability. Now, importantly and interestingly, um, also, worry, also worrisome, um, is that disability, as we've been describing it here, is also likely to intersect with other protected grounds of discrimination, some of which we mentioned earlier, such as race and gender, given the overrepresentation of historically marginalized groups among the people who would be particularly burdened by natural immunity passports. Now, Canadian human rights law, like the Ontario Human Rights Code, recognizes the reality of what academics, such as Kimberly Crenshaw, have turned intersectionality. So the fact that the unfair discrimination faced by people can be a function of multiple traits and not just one. And it seems likely that the loss of freedom to work and to participate in public life that would be suffered by the non-immune working poor in Canada, as well as the United States, and then having those losses tied to judgments about their biology under a natural immunity passport regime this would all be stigmatizing and in fact reifying of historical patterns of subordination in those societies. So the loss of freedom, the compromised well-being, and the stigma suffered by the working poor under natural immunity passports would likely not just be a function of lacking simply natural immunity, but also would intersect in meaningful ways with race, gender, and other like protected grounds of discrimination. That's right, exactly. Now, of course, anti-discrimination laws do provide governments and employers with ways of justifying certain differences in the treatment of some people compared to others. So under Canadian anti-discrimination law, it's not simply a matter of showing that people with this disability of not having immunity to COVID-19 have been treated differently. One would also have to show that this was not justifiable. And I really think the pivotal issue in determining whether immunity passports constitute unlawful and unfair discrimination is really the justification question. So are the social benefits of immunity passports enough? Are they sufficient to justify creating these two classes of people and harming the underprivileged vulnerable groups uh, in the way that you and I have discussed? I think we both believe that the factors we've already discussed would weigh heavily against justification, particularly given that immunity passports place a disproportionate burden on already underprivileged groups. Generally, our courts have, and tribunals have found that, that that is at least one factor that pushes against justification. And also, it's important to mention here that as I think you mentioned, Sabine, immunity passports attach a certain kind of stigma to non-immune status as well. Now, interestingly, the justification of policies that are allegedly discriminatory also depends on assessing what the available alternatives are, right? You can Canadian law and anywhere, you can't assess whether a policy amounts to unfair discrimination unless you know what the viable alternatives might be. And I think it's interesting and somewhat troubling that proponents of immunity passports often speak of them as though they're just 
inevitable and natural, and they don't discuss any alternatives. So the tacit implication that one comes away with from their discussions is, oh, that there must not be any alternatives. Um, but of course, th there are many alternatives and simply assuming that there are none is not a litigation strategy that would wash in any court or before any human rights tribunal. Governments, when if they implement immunity passports, will be asked in court to provide information about specific alternatives that they could have adopted. And certainly when we think about immunity passports, we need to think about alternatives. And I know the two of us think there are other fairer ways to open the economy. Um, we've talked about some of them already. We've talked about what employers can do to try and restructure places of employment and enable all employees to get back to work. And we're gonna talk about some other alternatives in the next section of our presentation. So I think now we are gonna move on to talk about vaccine-based immunity passports. So um, a, a first concern that we have with immunity passports, um, certifying people's vaccination status is a privacy concern. Um, and that's in part because one of the main proposals that's out there would require you to download an application um, and then get a barcode certifying that you've uh, been vaccinated, and then you would kind of go around showing people this barcode to be admitted to your workplace, stores possibly, and, and, other, and other places. And meanwhile, a lot of this information would be um, stored and gathered in a government database. So um, as we mentioned earlier, privacy, among the other legal concerns, are often bracketed by proponents of immunity passports as a set of concerns that are just about implementation. Like we can just worry about this later. Um, but we don't think that privacy laws can be an afterthought. Um, exactly. We think that it's really important to think beforehand about uh, what sorts of privacy concerns are raised by immunity passports and how to protect people from having their data shared uh, without their consent with an enormous number of private organizations in addition to the government. Proponents of immunity passports are seriously suggesting that once there's a vaccine, the government should record who is vaccinated and then share this information with your employer, with Loblaws when you try and go there to do grocery shopping, with Apple, with the Scotiabank Arena. This should determine who has access to sporting events. Um, th this is an enormous number of agents who are going to have information about you potentially. Yeah, and, and then to, to be clear as well, like this isn't just potentially medical information about our vaccination status that may be available. As we go about our daily lives, swiping our immunity badges to do groceries or grab a drink with a friend or go shopping, um, is the app gonna be collecting this information? Who will be able to see this information? And I, and I don't think we should dismiss these concerns as like the hypothetical concerns of a paranoid person. Um, this is actually really common, um, indeed the norm, and there's a, you know, a recent report out of Norway actually suggested that it's practically unavoidable for these kinds of apps to collect this sort of data about where we go and what we do with the application. And the companies and entities in charge of those applications often share that data with third parties. 
Now, of course, our apps already do track us, um, but that's already problematic, I think. And, and the fact that we're already in this problematic state of affairs, I don't think provides a reason for exacerbating those problems. Um, and importantly, with immunity passports, we're not just talking about voluntarily contracting into selling your private data in order to, say, post a restaurant review on Yelp. We're talking about conditioning access to jobs um, and public life on submitting to this kind of tracking. And so as, as you, Sophia, pointed out earlier, that's a whole kind of new social world that we'd be bringing about. Now, maybe some strong privacy laws could alleviate these concerns, but I think we have to be practical and realistic about what privacy law can do within the next three to six months. Yes. Um, historically, the pace of technological development has often outstripped privacy law. Privacy law is often really hard to enforce as ongoing litigation with Facebook and Google and now more recently Zoom illustrates. Um, and as uh, Professor Teresa Scasas pointed out in um, one of her talks in this series uh, entitled Pandemic Privacy, I highly recommend that you take a look if you're interested in these privacy concerns. Um, not only are there all kinds of complexities surrounding the laws that regulate private actors versus public actors in this kind of context, but it's not clear what the legal force is right now of a lot of our privacy laws given this background of a public emergency. That's right. That's right. So, so uh, I just wanted then I think I just want to emphasize coming out of this that again, uh, privacy law and how we address these privacy concerns cannot be an afterthought. It can't be something that we turn to address after we've got everybody's information in the database. Uh, we need concrete proposals. Uh, and I think the onus is on those who are in favor of immunity passports, who are busy urging the government to start creating such databases. The onus is on these people to help show us that there are actually ways of addressing these privacy concerns. And they have to do that now, not at a later date, once the apps have all been developed. Yes, precisely. And, and for those same proponents, um, I think it's equally important, just as in the case of natural immunity passports, that we attend to the kinds of burdens and unequal burdens that may be produced by adopting digital immunity passports based on vaccinations. And though they wouldn't produce identical burdens, um, they are similar and they do affect similar groups of people. So for instance, not everyone affords a smartphone, uh, can, afford a, uh, can afford a smartphone um, to display a digital immunity passport. Um, and then there's a risk that vaccines will at least initially be more readily available to more privileged members of society. I guess that depends on where they're offered. How many are offered? Will they cost anything? Um, will, purchase, will you have to purchase a license or an or a immunity passport certificate? And then a second issue has to do with requiring registration of vaccination status with the government. That can also have exclusionary effects. So for example, um, if you're an undocumented worker in Canada or in the United States, and there are indeed many undocumented workers, uh, both here and across the border, are you really going to feel comfortable putting your private information, like your name, and then possibly information about your whereabouts um, in a government database? Probably not. Now, um, of course, it may just be unavoidable that any widespread vaccination policy will disproportionately burden some people. 
So we're not claiming that the right policy will be the perfect policy that has no burdens or costs affected with it. That, that seems really unrealistic. Um, but what we want to urge is that we need to have a better understanding of what those disparate burdens are. Um, and we need to be prepared to offer a justification for any burdens that we impose that's morally acceptable to whomever is burdened. And as Yusufaya have pointed out several times, whether this kind of justification is available depends in large part on whether there are alternatives and what they look like. And there do seem to be some less invasive, more inclusive, um, and maybe even cheaper and faster alternatives to roll out. So to just very briefly canvas the canvas a sketch, give a sketch of a few of these. Um, instead of requiring digital immunity passports, maybe we could just hand out paper certificates upon receiving a vaccination and then make registration with the government voluntary. So that would obviate some of the worries about the exclusionary effects of costly phones or fears of deportation. We might also manage a limited supply of vaccines by making vaccines mandatory for only certain jobs initially, such as frontline workers. And then rather than incentivize vaccinations by threatening to withhold employment and access to public and shared spaces and stores and the like, we could instead start off by making vaccines widely and easily available. So public health nurses might come to workplaces and other common sites of social life like shelters and pharmacies and public areas and offer free vaccinations to whoever wants them. In fact, if I could interject here, I think people are so afraid of COVID-19 that I think the problem is going to be more likely how we obtain enough vaccines for everyone at the start, not incentivizing people to go and get them. But in a sense, that would be a happy problem to have. And you're right that there are a lot of ways of incentivizing people to get vaccinated other than through the punitive measure of punishing those who don't. Yes, I, I completely agree. Um, and of course, these alternatives aren't going to be flawless, but I, we think that they're worth exploring before we invest in a much more invasive or punitive alternative, as you put it, Sophia. Um, and, and, and part of justifying any burdens that we place on people um, through whatever strategy to reopen we adopt, I think requires considering uh, less invasive, less restrictive and more egalitarian alternatives. Great. So, so thank you all for listening. We want to just leave you with some con concluding remarks now. Um, in raising these concerns about immunity passports, we tried to shift the discussion a little bit away from medical risks and questions about the viability or practicality of immunity passports and onto moral and legal questions that they raise and the kind of moral justification we should be seeking for whatever strategies uh, we ultimately support to help us uh, exit our current lockdowns. And I think answering the question of how we should reopen society doesn't just require science, medical knowledge, and economics. It requires uh, a lot of moral thought and moral debate between Canadians like us. Uh, and that argument needs to explain, for instance, how the distribution of burdens produced by our strategies for reopening is fair. So we need to consider less restrictive, more egalitarian alternatives than immunity passports. I think in 
an underlying theme of both your remarks, Sabine, and mine has been that we can't all treat all burdens as homogenous. We can't just treat certain things as costs of exiting lockdowns. We have to attend in detail to the fact that cer certain ways of exiting our lockdown would exacerbate pre-existing social inequalities and place the greatest burdens on those who are already most vulnerable. And I think you and I have tried to argue today that this is not compatible with our society's commitment to social equality and social justice. So we need to think of other alternatives and we need specifically to ask which of those is most compatible with our society's commitment to equality for all and to social justice. And to highlight just one more theme in this discussion as well, as we think through uh, those alternatives and evaluate the distributions of burdens and maybe benefits as well that they produce, we need to think beyond a physical and economic well-being, which as important as they are, and that really can't be un, like overemphasized, um, they don't exhaust the dimensions of our lives that matter. Uh, we also need to think in terms of how the various strategies for reopening structure how we exercise our civil liberties to go about our lives with some degree of privacy um, and how those structures impact our ability to participate um, in social life as equal members of our communities. So just finally, uh, we just want to thank you all very much for taking the time out of your day to join us this afternoon. Um, and thanks again to the Center for Ethics for hosting us. And Thank take care. Yes. <laughs> um, and take care, everyone, and stay safe. Take care. Good afternoon.